We're in Luke chapter 14. If you want to scroll or turn there, we'll start anyway in Luke chapter 14. We'll bounce around a little bit. Next Sunday, we're going to be at the end of the book of Job. Anything in particular they should be reading ahead, David? David Goff's preaching next week. 38 through 42 in Job. So if you've got some time devotionally this week, you want to do some reading Job 38 to 42. David pastored for about 13 years at Temple Hills Baptist Church in Maryland, taught for about 25 years at Washington Bible College. Uh, and so we are just excited. He preaches itinerantly at a number of other churches in the area and helps them out. And uh, David and Terry are ours, so we get to keep them here. And so we're excited for that and excited to have you bring the word next Sunday, brother. Luke 14 is one of those sections of teaching that we would often define as hard teachings of Jesus. It includes one of these passages that's um, that's difficult. It, it is a setting of a, a meal, at least it starts with at the beginning of the chapter. Luke tells us it's a meal at the home of a Pharisee, and they are gathered there with some other religious leaders who clearly are watching and listening with a measure of skepticism as they're listening to Jesus, uh, scrutinizing his words. In verse 12 of Luke 14, Jesus turns to the Pharisee whose home the meal is at, and he, he challenges him um, to not simply host meals for friends and family, for those who can repay the favor, but he says in, in particular there to also invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, people who, as Jesus put it, cannot repay your hospitality. Um, minister to those without expecting something in return. And, and, and Jesus is clearly speaking to what we see through the Gospels as sort of this common fleshly instinct of the Pharisees, one that, that, that we struggle with at times, and that is the idea of being honored, of, of receiving back for what we give and, and giving to those to whom we can get something in return. Uh, and, and clearly the Pharisees, as Jesus often confronts them, are not concerned about those who would be regarded as sort of uh, outcasts of society. They, they are looking for those who can honor them back, who can give them something in return. Jesus goes further, talks about a, a large banquet, hosting a, a large banquet. He speaks about in verse 16, and the, the host sends his servant out and invite many people. This will be a great banquet. And so the, the invitations go out far and wide to people. And verse 18 tells us people begin to make excuses and they decline. I, I have oxen to take care of. I have a field to look after. My wife is not able to attend. One, one thing after another go the excuses and so the master of the house sends his servant back out and says, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And then later on, verse 23, uh, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's an interesting parable that, that sets the stage for what Jesus says next, which is what we're really going to focus in on. But one of those in the audience who's listening to Jesus perceives that this parable has to do with the kingdom of God, that this is not just a, a parable about hospitality and, and dinners and banquets, but that it actually is a, a, a reference point to the kingdom of God and the invitation to come and to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and the, the one who's listening says as much in verse 15, and we'll come back and look at that in a moment. But this, this invitation goes out. And it is to this great banquet, and so there's going to be joy and blessing, and yet 
Many just say, no, I, I, I don't want this, and they, they decline for a variety of reasons and couldn't be bothered with the invitation. The banquet goes on. Others are invited. There is blessing and joy for them, and there is loss for those who now have turned down the opportunity. From that point, Jesus then begins to speak to a large crowd. We, we assume he had been gathered inside, talking with the crowd inside, and that there's more crowd outside that have been following Jesus, and so now he's turning his attention to the larger crowd. And what he seems to want them to understand is, is that this, this story he's been telling, this parable about this banquet, about this feast that, that the one has wisely perceived as the kingdom of God, is that this invitation into the great feast, into God's kingdom, does offer joy and, and blessing, but it comes with responsibility. This is not simply an invitation to come to the party whenever you want, on your terms, do whatever you want, leave if you choose to. This party is just about whatever you want to do and, and fulfilling your desires. On the contrary, those who enter the kingdom of God become disciples of Jesus Christ. They are followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you look at verse 25, this is where I really want to begin to key in on Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We've probably read this before, so it doesn't come quite as shocking as it would have at that time. Here is this parable about a feast and a banquet and, and a broad invitation and come to this place of blessing. And Jesus now says to this crowd, he says, unless you are willing to hate others, unless you are willing to make me preeminent over all others, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He is following up on that, that perceptive comment back in verse 15. The one who is listening to Jesus teach makes the connection that this banquet is, is related to the kingdom of God. And so if you look back at chapter 14, verse 15, it says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Right. Good perception. He is, he is seeing that Jesus is not, again, just talking about hospitality or meals. He's talking about something greater. Blessed are all who enter into the kingdom of God. And he wisely says that, and there is great blessing. But again, Jesus is also careful to make sure that the, the response to that is to act as if following him and entering his kingdom is just some gigantic party that's meant to satisfy all of my desires. That this is all about me and, and, and God doing for me. Because in fact, the road to this great feast passes through some difficult terrain. That's what Jesus is going to begin speaking about. Following Jesus is a, is a pathway to, to life and peace and joy and blessing. But also because we know the life of Christ, because we know something about the life of the one we're following, we should also understand that there is tribulation. On this road as well. If you look at verse 28, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, insert in there whatever construction project you're going to do on your property, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, The man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is it's probably not one of those go-to passages that we make a beeline to when we're first talking to people about Jesus Christ and the gospel. This is not one of those passages that we say, hey, let me, let me make sure you, you see this, even though we, we probably would do well to do so, because this is what Jesus does. Here are these large crowds who have come to Jesus to see what Jesus has, what he can give, what he offers. Here's this banquet theme, and there seems to be so much blessing and now Jesus comes back and he says this, unless you're willing to count the cost, unless you're willing to renounce all of this stuff, you cannot be my disciple. This is tough stuff. It doesn't make it any less true or real. It's what Jesus said. There is great cost that comes with following one who was despised and rejected crucified by the very people that he came to, that he, he came to offer salvation to are the ones who despised and rejected him. This morning, we're, we're completing the series on holding things loosely and, and want us to think about holding our lives, our health, and our treasures loosely. It, probably uh, high on the list of things that we have a, a, a pretty tight grip on would be life, health, and the things we love, the things that we've we possess in some way, even, even relationships, things that are precious and, and cherished to us. For all that scripture says, and, and, and as you read through the New Testament, it's very evident that suffering, hardship, these are realities. Tribulation is part of what we are to expect as believers. Even persecution is promised to the New Testament church. And yet the reality is, if, if you're anything like me, I read that, I hear that, I, I affirm that, I know that, but I want it at sort of arm's length. I, I, sort, of, I sort of want it to be... You know, that was the first century church, and that was the, the, the church in the, the Middle Ages, and that's the church at other parts in, in the world. It's, it's not my experience, and, and I want to sort of stand off sometimes from that. There, there are times when I read about believers who, who stand for Christ in the midst of great suffering and, and stand firm in pain, and it, it is moving to tears. Stories of saints who have gone before and, and who have praised Jesus even as they were enduring great agony. And it, it, it causes me to praise God and thank him for, for what he's done and how he, he works in his people and how he holds them and, and keeps them. But I'm not eager to be in their shoes. There, there's something there that, that also I, I just want to step back from. It's just the reality of who we are as people in flesh. Then we come to Luke 14, and here's Jesus with unmistakable clarity saying, if you are going to follow after me, I must have the place of preeminence, the ultimate place of preeminence in your life, even over all the rest, even over people that you cherish. You must choose me and my will 
over and above all others, even to the cost of your own life. In following the Savior who gave himself for me, I, I must loosen my grip on things that I would otherwise cling to, and that would include life, health, things I treasure, and that's not easy. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, one of the, the principles that's found throughout Scripture is the, the principle of stewardship. Stewardship, as it's described to us in, in Scripture, we see stewards, we see the, the word stewardship, it's the idea of, of entrusting someone with something. A steward is a, a manager or an administrator, somebody who has been uh, given charge over someone else's possessions, given responsibility to care for someone else's stuff. And, and so there's this responsibility that comes with stewardship that I, I treat it as if it's my own, but I understand that I, I can't hold on to it like it's my own. And, and so for us as believers, it is what Stuart often says when we come to the offering time. It, it, it's that acknowledgement that everything we have is God's. And so what we're doing with it is we're being stewards of it. We're, we're taking what is God's and we are using it as a temporary possession. And, and in 1 Corinthians 4, the first couple of verses says, this is how one should regard us. Paul is speaking in particular about apostles at this point. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I want to come back to verse 2 because that's the, the key for what we're talking about here. Just so you understand, just the, the, quickly, the, the background of this, Church of Corinth develops this sort of fan club mentality about various apostles and preachers. Some are pledging allegiance to Paul. Some are completely dedicated to Peter. Some others, other preachers, Apollos, Cephas, others. It's just, it, it's this sort of fan club mentality of devotion. And Paul's response in chapter 3 says, you've got it all wrong. That Jesus is the one. We are all servants of Christ. We, we belong to him. He is the one who is worthy of your worship. We are all just servants. And that sets the stage then for what he says in chapter 4, servants of Christ. And in particular, for these who are preaching, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. It's not a really all that mysterious of a phrase when, when that's used in the New Testament. It's the idea of we are revealing truth to you. We, what we have in the New Testament is the, the preaching of those apostles, their, their teaching, their instruction. It is revealing to us instruction about the Lord Jesus Christ and about our following after him. And, and what he's saying here is that was entrusted to us and, and we're just being good stewards of it. The point, though, I want you to see is, is in verse 2, the fundamental requirement of stewardship is faithfulness. It's to, to take what you are given and to faithfully obey, to fulfill whatever that commission is that you have been given. Faithfulness is a defining characteristic of what it means to follow after Jesus Christ, to be his disciple. When Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 about his return, he hasn't even left them yet, and he's already preparing them for his second coming. And in Matthew 24, he's talking about how they must be ready for when he returns. And he says in Matthew 24, verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus says this is the measure 
of, of readiness, of following after me, of discipleship. It is being a steward who is faithful, who understands what, what he has been called to do, what obedience is, and, and follows through on that and faithfully obeys. That's being faithful to, to do what one is equipped and one is commanded to do is the hallmark of, of stewardship. And so when we talk about the cost of following Jesus, it, it begins with, first of all, our knowledge of who Jesus is, understanding who he is, what he taught, what he's done, but also that I can now be faithful. I, I am to walk like Christ. I am to obey his commands. I am to be faithful to these things. And so I must know who he is and, and how he has walked and what he's commanded me to do. Now, take all of that and, and pour it back into what we read in Luke 14 about counting the cost, about if anyone will not put me before all of the others, he cannot follow after me. Jesus' command for us to count the cost demands that we know him. It demands that we know that Jesus did his father's will, that he was faithful to it, he was faithful in all things, and that even though he was, he was rejected and despised and crucified. And so if we know that about him, then we also begin to understand what he is calling us to as his followers. In, in Luke 9, 57, someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And you remember this. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, again, it, not the kind of appeal we, we often tend to make concerning Jesus, but it's Jesus Christ saying, following me is, is not... It's not carefree and easy in the sense, the fleshly sense of just, I, I don't have anything, I can do what I want. This, this is what makes me happy. This fulfills all of my desires. Indeed, Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But that doesn't mean we come without responsibility to follow him. And that following him has cost. Isaiah 53, 700 years earlier, when it prophesies about Jesus, when it prophesies about the Messiah, says he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That is our Savior whom we follow. That is Jesus who is on the road to Golgotha and who has already been beaten and who is going there to, to suffer in our place and to be crucified. And Jesus says that you are following me. So don't, don't expect that it's always going to be easy. In fact, count the cost before you do. And that's exactly what he says to his disciples on the eve before his crucifixion in John chapter 15, when he's sitting with his disciples, those present, and he's, he's speaking to us, to the generations to come about what it means to walk in his footsteps. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you because you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you all. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Again, we, 
The temptation here is to sort of distance ourselves from this and say, well, that's what the, the disciples immediately experienced. But this is, this is to us as well as followers of Christ that we should not expect the world to be joyously embracing our following of Jesus Christ, that in fact at some level they despise it and, and, and would, if they could, shut it down, would stop it because they hate it so. And Jesus warned of this. In Christ... We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace that goes with us through any trial that surpasses our circumstances. We have fellowship with God. We have joy that is rooted deep in our souls. And we have abundant and eternal life with God. All of that cannot be taken away. That belongs to us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the rest, the rest we need to hold loosely. Life and health and treasure, all the rest, we need to hold in an open-handed way, trusting that God's will and God's timing are good. Uh, let, me, let me put this all under two umbrellas you have there in the, the, the notes and your outline. I, I think this comes down to how we use these things that God has entrusted to us for a season and how we lose them. How we use them and how we lose them. Using them is using them as, as what they are, temporary gifts of God's grace that he has purposefully given to us to use as stewards of his grace in order to bring glory to him. Got that? Life, health, treasure, relationships, all of these things that God brings to us are temporary gifts of his grace for which we should be glad and thankful but we are called to use them as stewards of his kindness, of, as faithful stewards, so that we might give glory back to him. And when we lose them, even then the aim should be to lose them with a grateful heart, to lose them with a heart that says, thank you that you entrusted this into my care. Thank you for that. And even in the loss, bringing glory to God. Even when we suffering loss, still having that aim of pouring back glory to the one who deserves it. The Bible over and over again speaks of the transience of our lives. The fact that we are, we are here for a fleeting time. The Psalms describe us like being breath or like grass. We were in the early service and, and all the dew that was on the grass in the early service that gets your shoes all wet. By the time we leave here, by about 1 o'clock or so, even this afternoon, somewhere in there, that, that for the most part will be gone. All that dew will have vanished. And that's the description that, that Scripture uses when it speaks of our lives being like a mist. In Psalm 90, Moses says, God, you are everlasting. You are from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, you have no beginning and you have no end. And yet then he says, the psalmist now speaking to God, you sweep them away. Speaking about man, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Some types of grass are are more resilient than others, but under the heat of the sun over the course of the summer, all of it eventually withers. All of us have an existence that's fleeting. Job said, my days go by faster than a runner. James uses the idea of the mist that appears for a time that vanishes. Scripture even uses the language of a shadow to describe that which is there and we can see it. 
And then as the sun moves, it, it vanishes, and then it's gone. And all of these are pictures to help us understand the frailty, the temporary state, the fleeting nature of our lives. All that we have is temporary and fleeting, and we are to hold on to it as such. The, the climax of the book of Ecclesiastes speaks about how our health ultimately fails, that, that, that there's just no escaping the fact that we are frail human beings and we wear out, hearing fades, sight goes away, joints begin to creak. All of the stuff that's pictured at the end of Ecclesiastes is a reminder of the transience of our lives, the fact that as we are getting older, we're more and more reminded of how fleeting good health is. It's disappearing. The body ages and it wears out. Jesus' encounters with the, the sick and the dying remind us that all forms of, of disease exist in a fallen world. And none of us are immune. And the same goes for our stuff. You're probably even thinking about this verse as we're talking about it. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, right? Where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves rather treasures in heaven. James echoes that in, in James chapter 5, when he warns those who are consumed with earthly treasures, he says that your riches will rot, your garments will be eaten by moths, and, and even fine metals will rust. That's why we get warranties, right? Guarantees, because we want to we try to protect things and preserve things for as long as possible. But even warranties come with time limits. They, they, they expire at some point because the reality is, it will go away. People say you can't take it with you when you go. That, that's just rehearsing what Scripture said a long time ago. God said that back in Ecclesiastes 5.15. The man who spent his life gathering stuff, he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry in his hand. Solomon's just bemoaning the fact that you do all this work, and you gather, and you build, and you do all this stuff, and in the end, when you die, you're not taking any of it with you. It all remains behind, and some of it will, will even be put into careless hands, and it'll, it'll rot even faster. 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Long before the word uncertainty became part of our everyday vocabulary, as it has in the past few months, Scripture used it in 1 Timothy 6, 17, again, the, the warning against setting your hope on the uncertainty of riches. That Greek word for uncertainty has the idea of something that, that was once seen and then becomes hidden in some way. Maybe it's now been overgrown, grass or weeds or have now filled the spot, and what you once saw now you can't find anymore. The golf ball that you hit down the fairway that shanks to the left and goes off in the woods that you will never see again because it's now disappeared. That, that's sort of the picture of what that uncertainty is. I, I saw it. And I had it, and I held it, and now it's just sort of vanished into the unknown. And that's what he says, don't, don't put your hope in that, because it's fleeting, because it will disappear. It's only temporary. It's, it's yours for a season to use well as a steward, and a steward is someone who is faithful to obey God in his use of that thing. It's good for that purpose. Strive for faithful stewardship. Stuart read it earlier during the, at the beginning of the service from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That means your, your health or your 
cancer, your wealth or your job loss, your good days or your bad ones, your accomplishments or your failures or the words of commendation you receive or the words of insult that are, are heaped at you. In all of those, there is opportunity to be faithful, to rest in God, to hope in God, to give glory back to God, to continue to point people to him in all of those. In whatever you do, there is opportunity to raise our hands and surrender to God and trust him in these things and point to him. Whatever season we're in from an earthly point of view is temporary. If you are in a season of ease right now, you know this already, that ease will at some point give way to some hardship. There, there's something coming that will be hardship. And there's no guarantee in Scripture that the hardship will necessarily lift. But what there is a guarantee of is that the hardship is being used by God. James chapter 1, it says, to produce within us steadfastness, to cause us to be people who rest in him and who find our endurance in God, and so he is maturing us through those. And so the, the hardship may not be as fleeting as we'd like it to be, but our response is still to be faithful stewards who strive to glorify God in the midst of that. We must hold life and health and treasures loosely, using them as temporary gifts for the glory of God that he has given us to be stewards with, but also how we lose them. Losing them, whether it's life that is slipping away, whether it's health that is declining, whether it's treasures that are gone, being broken, rotted away. Having gratitude that God entrusted them to us and even in losing them, seeking to glorify him in the process. I, I, perhaps the ultimate test of whether we're gripping things too tightly is what happens when they start to go away when health begins to fade, when life seems to be in danger of slipping away, when treasures are broken or stolen, something happens to them. How would we respond then? The, the fleshly instinct is to cling, to grab all the more. Paul, in, in Acts chapter 20, it, it records his reunion with the Ephesian elders. If you recall, he is traveling back to Jerusalem. He has been compelled by the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem, but also knows full well that returning to Jerusalem probably brings with it great suffering because there is tremendous opposition against him there. And so in Acts chapter 20, he's talking to the Ephesian elders in verse 22. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's a remarkable statement. In that Paul says, I know, I, I know frankly from what God has already warned me of, that this will mean chains and tribulation. And, and, and it's not that he's sort of self-loathing when he's saying this, but he's saying that the value in my life is to the degree that it is spent in finishing the course that God has given to me. That the thing I, 
I most long to do with my life is, is finish well, is to be used by him, even if that means suffering. And so what drives him is the knowledge that his life is most valuable when it is being poured out for God and fulfilling what God called him to do. You know the story. He goes to Jerusalem, and sure enough, Paul is arrested, and so begins the mistreatment and the journey that will take him eventually to Rome, where Paul knows he is making an appeal, at least that's his desire, is to make an appeal to the emperor for the fact that he has been taken into custody. And he knows full well that what lies at the end of that path is very likely suffering and maybe even possibly execution. And, and, and sure enough, if we get to the final lines of the last letter that we have from Paul, presumably that's 2 Timothy, at least the last letter in Scripture is 2 Timothy. And at the very end of that, chapter 4, as he is writing his final words and urging Timothy to be a faithful servant, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is Paul from jail, writing to Timothy. He has been stripped of any earthly treasures at this point. There's no more riches in, in, in Paul's life. In fact, he's at one point pleading for Timothy to bring a coat to help him endure the, the cold. There's nothing left at this point. His health is fading to the point that he can, he can feel its decline as he's sitting there, and he, he's realizing that death is imminent. And his response is not to, to, to fight or to complain or to grow bitter. His response is rather to plead to God to help me finish well. Help me as I have already lost earthly treasures. I've already lost most of the friendships and relationships that were dear to me because we're separated now by miles and I can't talk to them anymore and I'm away from them. My health is going and I've got very little left except for this breath and this opportunity to, to dictate some last letters. Help me to finish well and to glorify Christ in suffering. He had long before that come to the conviction that life and health and treasure were temporary and fleeting. They were things that God had given to him for a season to use well as a faithful steward. And he had strived to do that and to be intentional about taking these things as gifts of God's grace and ways to glorify God. So now when they were all going away, he was able to say, I've, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. How are you being intentional about holding your life and your health and your treasure loosely? How are you being intentional about coming to that point? God only knows if, if you and I get the time like Paul did to sort of do some final accounting at the end as he did. For some of us, we won't get that, that blessing. It won't come. It'll, death will come much more quickly. But how are you being intentional to come to that point, being able to say, I've I fought the fight, I've kept the faith, stayed the course? Let, let me just give you some questions. We'll close with these, just some questions to, to think about as you apply this. Does the way that you possess and use stuff 
understand when I say that. There's a lot of stuff that's part of everyday life. You gotta have a car to get to work, need clothes, there's, there's things that, that we need. But, but how, I'm talking about your heart now, in, in, in the way that you possess stuff and use it does, it, does it show, does it reflect an abiding belief that these things are God's and he has entrusted you, entrusted them to you for a season? Does, does the manner in which you use these things, possess, hold these things, does it, does it demonstrate that ultimately this is God's? And, and, and if it all goes away, then, then God must have a purpose in taking it all away, and I am going to use it as best I can for his glory in the meantime. When health issues or job loss or some other devastating circumstances arise, beyond that initial moment of, of catching your breath and, and coming to grips with the diagnosis or the call you've just gotten or whatever it is, do you then run to your Savior as the only real, lasting, abiding, sure refuge in those moments? Do you run to Jesus believing that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he will walk with you through this, and that he has purpose in this? To put practical hands and feet on that, do you, do you run to your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's one of the reasons he's given us the body of Christ, is so that we would experience that, that, that coming alongside and helping us to, to stay faithful, to be a good steward, even in this time of suffering and loss. Maintain gratitude, helping us to, to still thank God even in those situations. Are there areas of life in which concern for your security and your well-being are threatening to override the cost of discipleship? What I mean by that is, is we, we all deal with cravings for, for physical peace, for being secure, for being cared for and provided for, but are there areas where that, that desire, that concern for my own security and well-being are, are causing me to push the counting of the cost aside and, and, and not wanting to rest fully in Christ, not wanting to perhaps take risk for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and so I'm weighing the one over the other, security over the, the cost of following Christ. And then the last one, are you cultivating such a satisfaction in God and his gospel and in the things that await us in heaven that they overpower the lure of life under the sun? Let's, let's be honest here. And Ecclesiastes teaches this. God has given us things to enjoy. The, the, the whole point of this message is not to say we, we need to get rid of it all and, and take a vow of poverty and go off and live in the wilderness and be destitute. That's not the point because Ecclesiastes tells us, eat, drink, and be merry. God's provided these things, so receive them with a heart of gratitude. But are we cultivating in our hearts such joy in the gospel, such gladness in our God and Savior, such an anticipation of what is before us in heaven that that just overpowers so that these things here, they're wonderful things to use for a season, but if you take them away, my heart is already sure in its devotion to Christ and longing for what lies ahead. Does that, are we cultivating something that, that looks forward in anticipation that overpowers the lure of, of what's beneath the sun? These are challenging areas. I am, I am not preaching 
at you this morning. I am preaching to myself as someone who struggles with possessions and, and who stands here in relatively good health, and it feels pretty easy to preach this kind of stuff, and I'm not sure how I feel when that moment comes when that, that changes. And so I, I, this is just about sharing God's word with you and, and reminding us again that these, just as God's mercies are new every morning, so are the, the world's temptations to cause us to want to cling to life and health and treasure and believe that this is it. This is where we're at. And, and we need God's grace and his strength that we would maintain the focus of being faithful stewards. This is ours for a season. How we use it and ultimately how we lose it should glorify our king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we consider the, the things around us and the, the comforts and the pleasures and the blessings that we have, none of these could compare to what our Savior enjoyed in heaven, the adoration of the, the heavenly throng that worshipped the Son of God. And, and yet, it's clear, Philippians describes it to us, he he willingly, gladly divested himself of all of that benefit, special, unique blessing, and set that all aside in order to take on flesh and to become a man so that he would come and pour himself out in sacrifice for sinners. That he would in order do all of that in order to become a man so that he might take the wrath that we deserve for our sin and endure it in our place as the substitution for us so father we when we see jesus warning us to count the cost to follow him above all others even when that comes to choosing between the ones we love or life itself and following Christ, we do so looking to Jesus, the one who came to do your will, came to be faithful to your will, and to endure it regardless of the cost and the great suffering that he endured. Lord, help us as weak people of flesh empowered by your spirit to hold loosely the things that we grip. None of us here, none of us in this room, none of us watching online knows at all what lies ahead in this week to come. And for some, there may be suffering that comes quickly. There may be suffering of a loved one that they are walking with even now or that lies ahead. We are pleading for sufficient grace and strength, pleading that you would allow us to be weak and transparent so that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ would be used by you to, to bring glory to yourself. Thank you that you uphold those who are your own and that you are the one who is working steadfastness into us as a result of the hardships that we endure. Father, if there is anyone listening this morning who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ, who looks at suffering and death, not just as a, 
as a hardship that they wonder quite how they'd endure, but, but looks at it with fear, not sure what would happen if they were to suddenly die. I pray that this day you would bring them to believe that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came and died on the cross and that we are called to put our faith in him alone, turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Thank you. Thank you that we know, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ beyond the shadow of a doubt, that this is not all there is, that what we see around us, we've talked about the treasures and the stuff we love, and there's so much around us that we, we don't have a love for, that we dislike in our culture, in our world. All of it is fleeting. We long for the, the full reign and establishment of your kingdom amongst your people forevermore. We pray all this in Jesus' name.